Hello and welcome to the Landing Theater New Works podcast, where in each episode we learn about a new play with the help of the world's leading expert in that play, the person who wrote it. I'm Brendan Borkshield, literary associate for The Landing, and today I'm talking to Rachel Baikowski about her new work, The Forgotten Language of the Handshake, or The Torso Play, an official selection for The Landing's 2021 New American Voices Playwriting Festival. You know when you're reading something at home and it's so stimulating that you keep having to stand up and walk around and just take a swim in the ideas you've been given? This play gave me that like four times when I first read it. In this play, Rachel builds a darkly comical but frighteningly plausible future that's dizzying in its scope and fascinatingly reflective of the present. It's hard enough for a play to be this smart, but to balance that intelligence with as much playfulness and theatricality as this script has is a stunning achievement. The love for theater as an art form and the drive to push that art form forward are vividly on display in every scene of the torso play. We cover a lot in this conversation. Critics, world-building, writing quote-unquote unproducible plays, the challenge of showing rather than telling, which I think is particularly daunting when your play happens in a radically different world the way this one does. And just like the play, the playwright is charismatic and curious and never goes more than a minute or so without giving you something fun and thought-provoking to chew on. It was really an honor to get to speak with her. Heads up, there are a couple key moments from the later half of the play that we discuss in detail, so if you missed the landing's reading and you'd like to read the script before hearing any spoilers, go do that. It's currently available to download on newplayexchange.org, along with a bunch of Rachel's other plays. And while I'm plugging Rachel's work, let me also mention another Rachel Bykowski project that's available at the time that this podcast is being released. Rachel's play, Tight End, is being presented through May 2nd by Relative Theatrics. It's a hybrid theater film production streaming on demand. Find out more on Rachel's Facebook page on relativetheatrics.com or rachelbykowskiplays.com. Okay, enough from me. Let's hear from Rachel. Before we go into anything deep, I did want to mention that in doing research for this, I realized we have at least one thing in common, which is we've both been reviewed by Ada Gray. Yes, she's lovely and insanely like talented from like a young age too, right? Helps when you have a mom that is like that just amazing in terms of just letting you do your thing and speak your mind. But yeah, she is a lovely young woman. I love that. I didn't know anything about her until there was just a 13-year-old, at the time 13, in the audience for the play that was going up of mine. And I was told after the fact, oh, she'll be reviewing your play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? I don't know, man, if a 13-year-old like pans my play, how I'm going to react to that. <laughs> but how did you feel when you knew that was happening? Were you like nervous? So I knew about her. And so, you know, that was like the equip for me, that was the equivalent of getting like Chris Jones in the room, right? With the, okay. the, yeah. So for me, I was just like, oh my God, she's going to be here. And to be quite honest, like, I really do believe that she writes some of the best criticism, um, Same. Tr- traditional criticism, right? Like I think so many people try to insert their own opinions and things like that into reviews and don't actually take the time to ask what was the writer trying to do? Did they achieve it? And was it worth the doing? Like those three major things that are supposed to guide your criticism. And she does that. And I'm just like, you're 13. How do you know this? I didn't learn that until I went to grad school. It's maybe she didn't have to unlearn a bunch of stuff or something. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel exactly the same way. Like I, um, there are five reviews out there of that play. Hers is my favorite by far. And the one where it seems like someone like 
directly engaged with the ideas of the play. Also, it's just nice to have a break from sort of that tone and that mode, not to take a cheap shot at like traditional criticism. Traditional no, please do, criticism. because I have so many opinions <laughs> about it, so it's fine. <laughs> but there's always this sort of tone, even from the most open-minded, open-hearted professional theater critics of, of having seen it all and what could you, young playwright, possibly have to offer. And that feeling of a critic really meeting you where you're at, I don't know if I had seen that before I read her review of that play. No, I would say that even the most experienced critics don't do that because to your point, I think a lot of folks have a difficulty embracing new work uh, where they don't trust it, mm-hmm. right? So if they do an, an Ibsen or a Chekhov or whatever, that's tried, that's true, that's tested, that's canon. So we're just going to focus on the production and that's fine. But when it comes to new works, it's just like, can we trust the script? Is the script really done? Yes. Does the playwright know what they're doing? And it's just like, just it's here. This is what I'm presenting you. What do you think about what I'm presenting you? Don't try to write your own play. <laughs> that's, oh my God. That's the thing about when you're a playwright and you get your first reviews. Compare this to actors who will be in five or 10 productions often before they get a lot of ink about them in a review. And I know that there's a struggle that goes along with that and the mm-hmm. feeling of going unacknowledged. But there is something pretty traumatic about that first review when you go from complete anonymity to suddenly publicly being like on blast, the center of attention. And it was hard to walk off at least the first couple of times, I think. Yeah. Yeah. It was difficult. I just, I, it it freaks me out to be the center of attention in general. So when a newspaper was like saying my last name and referencing what they thought my thoughts were and all this stuff. And I'm just like, I, who is this person I'm reading about, right? Like I didn't even realize I was reading about myself and and the play that I wrote at some point. Very (laughs) difficult. So I just found it best to like go, go lose myself again in like a big crowd. I think I went shopping or something. And when the, you know, the person at the register didn't even know who I was, I was like, thank you. Yes, I will buy all this. Yeah. (laughs) You needed like a direct IV infusion of anonymity. Yeah, Yeah, I did. Mm. I did. That's why stuff like this makes me a little nervous, but um, I appreciate the conversation beforehand because it definitely makes me <laughs> like lower my guard a bit. So. <laughs> oh, I totally understand. It makes me nervous too, because we're playwrights. The way that we want to engage with the world is on the page. We don't want to mm-hmm. do this part. This no. is not our best conduit to no. self-expression. Yeah, no. <laughs> that being said, let me force you for the next hour to <laughs> express yourself in this imperfect way. Um, I love this play. I really, this is one of the most like brain tickling plays where like at least a couple times every scene, there's this moment of going, oh my God, I never thought about it like that, but yes. And I have speculations about where it came from or, or things that may have influenced it. But before I try to insert that, can you just say what sparks the idea for this play? Yeah, sure. So typically, whenever I go into writing anything, I usually start with images and in particular book ending images, right? I start with a beginning image and then I start with an ending image. And sometimes it hits me different ways. Sometimes the ending image will hit me first. Sometimes the beginning image will, but I always start with some sort of fixed image that is kind of my obsession for months, even before I sit down to write the play. So for whatever reason, months before I ever sat down to write this, the image in my head was just a human torso. For whatever reason, I don't know what that says about me and my psychology. That's between (laughs) me and my therapist. 
but yeah, it was just this human torso, just there on display on a pedestal, whatever. And the more I think about where that image might have come from and what kind of spark this was, I really, uh, that image came to me, uh, right around the time, uh, those, those, you know, six week abortion bans were, were trying to get passed oh. in so many places. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the idea of just a woman losing her bodily autonomy is probably one of my worst fears being somebody who identifies as a woman losing your agency, losing your autonomy to say, um, what is your body, your control over it, all of that. So that was kind of swimming around in my head for a little bit. The image popped up and I, I sat with it and that was my fear of all the stuff that was happening in the world and the legislation that was trying to get passed. And then at the same time, at my day job, I started working at a software place at a tech company. So I have this fear of losing my autonomy. I have this image of a torso I don't know what to do with. And now I'm learning about all this futuristic tech stuff that is truly like mind-blowing. Some of the things that I sit in and see that we are currently doing right now. And I just started thinking about like what would happen if a woman could choose to sell literal pieces of her body off and what are the complications with that? What's, uh, what, 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 what are the moral complications with that? The financial things, right? I was also plagued, like many people of my generation, with what to do with the crippling debt that a lot of us are saddled <laughs> with, right? So, you know, oftentimes I'm just like, man, what would I pay to get my student loan debt off my back? I was like, would I, would I literally give a piece of myself to get my student loan paid? And sometimes I'm like, yeah, maybe. So that's, that's kind of where that idea came from, all that kind of mixed together. But it definitely did start with the image of this torso. Mm. And then um, from that image, I just built this play off of where that torso was going to end up at the end of the play. I love the combination of like honoring your impulses, but also taking a long time to, to ruminate on those impulses and, and to sort of like examine where they come from in the first place. Because, yeah, I feel like spontaneity and also lots of time to go away and think about a problem and, and used, use the left side of your brain are, are both such uh, crucial pieces of, of the process. My thinking when I was reading this in terms of a thing that was influencing it was, I'll back up for a second and say, you remember how early on in COVID, there was this like sort of informal campaign on playwright Twitter that was like, don't write plays about COVID, please. Like, yeah. don't ever, I don't know if anyone who wrote those things really truly felt that or if they were just sort of venting their frustration. But I think what they really meant was like, don't make us watch a play where we just have to relive the boredom and the trauma of COVID and, and being stuck in our houses all day. And I was like, yeah, but some people are going to figure out how to write about COVID without writing about COVID. They're going to figure out how to take aspects of this experience we all lived in that we can relate to and apply them to their own vision. And there are so many things in here where it feels like we took an aspect of lived experience from the last year or so and figured out how to use it to serve this other thing that you're talking about. I think about, you know, the experiment announcement at the beginning of the play and the suggestion that, you know, an, an audience has just gotten to a place where they can assemble in large groups again. The mention of essential workers, like even the title of the play, how many of us at some point during COVID thought, well, handshakes are a thing of the past now. 
Am I right about this? Did, did COVID influence your journey in writing this? So I definitely want to go on the record and say that this is, this is not my quarantine play. Like I just, I just want to sure. make that very clear <laughs> for the, <laughs> for the playwriting community that I also, you know, I remember that trend that was happening and it truly was like a breath of fresh air because I think what those folks who were posting, like, please don't write a COVID play, please don't. I think to your point, what they were saying was um, there was such a pressure on writers. And I'm, and I'm sure you can understand this too, that you have to, if, if you're not writing, then you're not a writer. And that's like a huge lie. That's a huge lie. I think a lot of people early on in their careers think that writing looks like you know, in front of a computer typing away or have pen, pen of paper and just, just writing, writing, writing. That's not what necessarily writing is. Writing is also observation, contemplation, just taking a step back, looking around, letting you absorb some things. And then when you're ready to actually put like ink to page, then you can go ahead and do it. So during this time when we're in a global pandemic, and quite frankly, we have much bigger things to worry about, many of us, like, yeah, don't feel pressured to be a physical writer. Like, so I totally get that. So this definitely wasn't like my quarantine, I need to write a play. Mm-hmm. Play. Um, also, I started writing uh, this play mentally, right? So that idea of letting it sit in my brain, let it absorb, let me contemplate it. I started writing this at least two years before the pandemic hit. So from that image of like a torso working in tech, um, the abortion bans, all that stuff, uh, I consider that part of my writing process. Mm -hmm. So when I actually felt ready uh, that I had a story, that I had that opening image, I had that ending image, I had an idea of the journey that was going to happen, and I felt confident enough to go in front of my laptop and start writing, it just so happened to be, you know, what was April of 2020. It, it just so happened. Mm-hmm. So the elements in there that, you know, ring very true to, oh, she's talking about the pandemic that we're in right now. Yeah, of course they do, because that's the environment that I'm in. And it, it is influenced by that. Um, but I, I definitely didn't want this to be, oh, this is the coronavirus play, right? This is not the COVID-19 play. But I do think that if I'm writing about a potential future, that a potential future is going to remember what we went through. And there is going to be, uh, not only just a remembrance, but, uh, side effects from what we went through and, I, I tried to make those those side effects, those ripple effects, uh, visible in the play, or else I don't know. To me, it, it wouldn't seem um, it wouldn't seem futuristic. Yeah, I already feel like from what we've talked about so far, I'm beginning to see what the answer to this question is going to be. But when you you look at what this play is, the the futurism of it, the science fiction of it in contrast to the rest of your work, which tends to sit in the world of of realism or something realism-ish. At first glance, it might seem like a real departure from most of your work so far, but are there commonalities between those plays and this one? Are there themes you are continually revisiting? Yeah, I think in terms of themes that I'm always visiting in every single one of my plays is this question of legacy and how individuals contribute to either their family's legacy or their found family's legacy. Um, and how they build on it or how they change it and what that means for them. 
I also think that I continue to explore this idea of, of women taking control of that legacy of their family and trying to lead it, guide it. Um, you know, my main character, Sax, is trying her best to get her sister out of contracted military service and also taking care of her sister's child, right? So what does that look like for Sax's journey? And then the other character in there, Sarah, she too is also trying to build a legacy for herself and, and taking control of that. And what does that mean to be somebody who is uh, female identifying in that role, taking on uh, this idea of controlling your legacy, adding to it, what have you? Those are definitely themes that run through every single one of my plays. Did this feel like a bold step into a world unknown for you? Did this feel like a very organic continuation of you know your work up to that point? I would say that this was, this is one of the plays that I actually just had so much fun writing that, I mean, I, I was, I had never written sci-fi before and I would never truly consider sci-fi like, it, it's not a question of favorite. That's not the word I'm looking for. It, it's not a genre that I seek out often, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it was very strange to me that, that this is where my brain wanted to go and where my imagination wanted to live. So it was in that aspect, it was new, it was different, but I don't necessarily think I was afraid of it because I was just having so much fun just kind of building this world and thinking to myself, well, this world doesn't exist, right? Like it doesn't. So I can tell it to do whatever the fuck I want it to do. I can make up whatever the hell I want in this world to happen and and I can make it happen. And that was probably one of my favorite parts of this that didn't make it scary because Nobody knows what's going to happen a year from now. Nobody knows what's going to happen a hundred years from now. So I can put that in my play and say, yeah, that's what I think. And in addition to that, this play kind of gave me a true freedom to do what I absolutely love to do with every single one of my plays. I have this in like my artistic mission. Every single play I sit down to write, I always make sure to include at least one unproducible element in the play. I love that. And I say unproducible and I'm using air quotes because I know this is an audio medium. So I I say unproducible because I know that especially when I was an undergrad and I was getting taught playwriting, you know, the the big thing was taught was a very capitalistic approach of just like get your play done, make it small, make sure it's producible, easy to cast, easy to whatever, get it up. And I was very fortunate to have mentors around me that were like, fuck that. You want to put, you know, like, stars, moon, and have your play be done on Mars, then do it. That's up to your designers to figure out. That's up to your director. And you know what? Your director and designers will actually enjoy that. They will enjoy having something unproducible because for me, the unproducible element of the play, that's where theatricality comes from. That's where like your imagination gets to explode. And when a director, you know, reads a play and there's an unproducible element in there and they go, how the fuck am I going to do that? (laughs) That's where theatricality is born. Mm Because the things that I have seen on stage that are unproducible are the reasons I love theater. Yeah. And the conversations that come from wrestling with how to produce this and why is this here? Why does this need to be here? And your justification for something becomes so ironclad and so crystallized when you have to do that work compared mm-hmm. to something that might go totally unexamined in a, like a three-hander, a tight 93-hander with no unproducible, also in air quotes, elements to it. So, okay, 
you're you're looking at this, you're like, according to the Rachel Bykowski rules of writing a play, there has to be an unproducible element in here. The torso, that's going to be tough. Uh, were there other things that were, you know, from the start, like, oh, also the holograms or also the the commercials? Were, were there specific aspects where you're like, I'm definitely going to include this? Uh, or did yeah. you find these I mean, along the way? I just went fucking nuts with this because honestly, like it was... You know, we're, we're living in a global pandemic and I was like, nobody's going to fucking read this. This is fine this is for me. Um, so, so I didn't care. I didn't. So I sat down and I was like, fuck yeah, put a torso on stage, put human legs on stage. Now let's do holograms. Now let's also do like a living world between the internet, right? Where, where you're interacting with your actual tablet. I call it a life scroll in my play. Like let's do all this weird, crazy shit because I was just like, chances are it's going to live with this play is going to be between me, my laptop and, and my tequila soda. So um, <laughs> that was fine. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely took my rule of one unproducible element and just, I expanded it because I think like, especially when you're doing sci-fi and that's something that I'm, I'm finding that I truly love about this genre. And I'm definitely going to keep pursuing. I have a couple other ideas for future plays that, that are in the genre as well is that there is just such a freedom when you get to dictate what the world is and you get to make the rules. And I mean, that's true for all plays and all playwriting, right? You, you get to do that. But I mean, there's something about whether you're going to say, especially like if you decide I'm going to set my play on the moon, like it's up to you what the moon looks like and how people act on it and how they move on it. And, and this is my version of setting my play on the moon, right? Just putting in the future. It seems like this play may have sort of opened a door for you creatively to this sort of new avenue. It's interesting that I heard you mention sci-fi not being something you seek out because I don't know if I'm surprised by it, but I'm, I was a, a little bit like this person must devour sci-fi. This must be like a sci-fi aficionado. I had wondered if there were other plays or stories in any medium that had, you know, really strong world building that made you go, I want to do that. But it, it sounds like it, possibly there weren't, possibly this was just a whim. Uh, is that true? Were there, were there influences that helped guide you or inspire you in building this world? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, plays that always, like, just any play that does that does the unproducible and does it well is, like, my guide. So, like, a, a couple of go-to productions that I, I always think about and I always try hard to measure myself against. Like, am I doing enough? Am I being daring enough? Am I saying fuck it enough, right? Mm -hmm. A couple of plays that I can think about, you know, are definitely one of my favorite productions that I see every single year is Burning Bluebeard. It's a show in Chicago that comes around every single Christmas. It's a fantastic production. And that entire play is just one unproducible element <laughs> after another. So I, I definitely think about like, what did that playwright do? I think about a lot about another playwright that I look up to that just says, fuck it, is uh, Christiana Ray Cologne, and specifically the play Good Friday. I just think that play, once again, playwright was just like, this is my vision, this is my world, and I'm saying fuck it, and I'm doing it. And the production that I saw was just a mesmerizing thing. And then I think like in terms of world building and what's a possibility and what kind of maybe now that I'm thinking of it truly planted the seed in my head and I'm going to forget the exact title of the play. So if you can remind me, please, it's the, uh, the, the electric the Simpsons. Mr. Burns, um, a post electric play by yes, Ann Washburn. Yes. Yes. <laughs> thank you. By Ann Washburn. How dare I? Oh my God. How dare I forget that. But yes. That play I got to see in production and 
that was probably my first introduction to, can we call that sci-fi? Sure. I think so. Okay. Well, that was my first introduction to what I considered sci-fi on stage. And I saw that many, many years, even before the torso popped into my head. And I think it just must have stuck there because that I was just like, I can't believe this is something that I'm seeing right now that we're producing, that somebody looked at this, read the script and was just like, yeah, this is pretty much unproducible. Let's do it. Like, (laughs) yeah. So definitely like those influences were with me while I was trying to measure myself up against these, these greats of productions and writing. Mm, This is answering a question that I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to ask about the commercials and the choice to put them into this. Basically, I was going to ask it from a point of view of like, I would be having so much fun. I would feel so creatively fulfilled if I was writing these. And I would also be really scared that they were going to put people off because of the need for pre-production that that calls for. But it sounds like part of your mandate is to quote you, fuck it. So um, <laughs> it's either- No, it's true. I mean, like I was having just a lot of fun writing those. You know, one of the the big hurdles that I came up against while exploring sci-fi in general was trying to avoid, you know, expositioning people to death. And I think, you know, the things that I see that are based in the sci-fi realm that that do it wonderfully, like I'm just like, how the hell do you do that? Because there there is such a oh gosh, there is such a temptation, right? Because you feel like you need to explain to your audience that this is what happened. This is how we got here and all the ins and outs. And I honestly think like a lot of it just comes down to just trusting your audience. I've been seeing a big wave of that actually happening in film that I'm very impressed with, which was probably also another influence for me in terms of uh, certain horror genres. But I just, I wanted to do the thing where I just dropped my audience into the world and tried my hardest uh, not to explain anything, which is why I'm grateful for workshops like Landing Theater, because they're going to let me go back into my script and be like, nope, I'm explaining things. Nope, I'm explaining things. Cut, cut, cut. Hmm. But yeah, I just wanted to do my best just to drop folks in. And one of my mechanisms to do that was the videos, was the advertisement, right? That these are things that you would see on your scroll while you're going through, like similar to, you know, when you're scrolling through Instagram or Facebook and those ads pop up, like that's exactly what I was thinking of. And those ads, you know, when people look back at them for history lessons or whatever, that's going to inform folks of what it was like in the 21st century. That's going to inform folks what we were interested in, what we were consuming, where we spent our money, things like that. So yeah, that was, that was my attempt to move away from over-exposition and just letting people exist in this world. Which, that's a really understandable dilemma, is, you know, feeling like I have so much to explain, I don't want to get trapped into explaining everything to death. But part of, like, the payoff of this play, part of the gift of this play, is the world itself. And being given enough of that world, enough of a view of that world, that you as an audience member can kind of keep a little pocket universe of it in your head and then kind of visit it from time to time. And I always kind of wonder when there's a world that is this unique, was your approach to this kind of building the world from the ground up and then finding a story? Did the finding of the story help you discover the world? Was it a mix of the two? What was that process like? So I stuck pretty consistently to my tried and true method of just tracking my objects, right? So I have a torso, and then where does the torso end up? That was my tracker. And 
all I was obsessed with while I was writing this play was what happens to that torso, who interacts with it, and then how did we end up at the end of it? And then based on that plot and the obstacles these characters would run into, that's what kind of informed the world around me. So I, I guess to answer your question, I stayed very specific to just the plot. And then I let the world kind of color in the obstacles that my, my characters would have to overcome in order to get where they needed to go. Did this play reveal itself to you only through digging? Or was this one where, you know, you're walking around and ideas are, are popping into your head at a certain point, the world starts building itself? I think it was definitely one of those moments where it was it was when I was walking around and I just started noticing things. So I think one of the ideas that I'm definitely going to play with while I'm rewriting this is because things are still like popping up to me now. And especially the more and more I learned about how far technology is advancing through my day job, I realized that I didn't even do an, like, I'm not even scratching the surface of what is happening behind the scenes of like how manufacturing lines are now working, you know, supply chains, things like that. I mean, like we are truly, whenever I try to explain to people what I do in my day job, I'm just like, we're pre-Terminator. I just do, I just <laughs> do before Arnold Schwarzenegger showed up. We are about five years away from that. So that's, that's currently where we are right now. So based on what I'm getting fed with, you know, as inspiration through my day job and just what I'm just seeing, you know, I'm, I'm the, uh, I'm, I'm going to date myself on the TikTok. Uh, <laughs> all the kids are doing it. You know, I'm noticing that like, there's this like almost permanent filter you can put over your face yeah, yeah. right? when you're taking selfies and things like that. And then what is that doing in terms of influencing what you're actually seeing on the screen, what you're actually consuming? Right. Even in terms of clothing, uh, things you're giving your money to. Right. How is our filters influencing what you're buying, what you're giving your hard earned cash to? So I definitely I'm finding new stuff every single day because technology is not stopping. It's just mm -hmm. ramping up. So that's kind of a challenge that I'm looking forward to with this play. I personally don't believe plays are ever done. They're living, breathing creatures that are constantly morphing and changing. Right so I can definitely see myself years from now still rewriting this play and adding in elements because especially when it's something that's so tied to technology and the future, it's just going to keep getting stranger, weirder. So I'm, I'm definitely going to keep on adding elements that I'm seeing in order to enhance what's going on in this world. Is there any anxiety about the tech actually catching up to the vision <laughs> and like this becoming less of prescient, like prediction of the future and more of like a statement on the present? I mean, like, I, I think there is a lot of that, right? Like, so plays are a reflection of what's currently going on in society, right? And, and I think that tech is always going to be changing, right? So it's always going to be moving forward. It's going to be moving forward at a fast pace. So that's not necessarily uh, what I'm concerned about or, you know, what, what's causing me anxiety. I, I think what, in terms of the play catching up with itself, I think, unfortunately, you know, the, the sad truth of this play is that I am worried about, you know, if and when, and, and I hope it's not this soon, but like, you know, in the play, I referenced some climate change stuff that has happened uh, and, and they're very brief references, but it's just like, you know, that can happen in 20, 30, who knows how many years. So if, you know, knock on wood, this play is for whatever reason getting produced 50 years from now and that disastrous occurrence happened, how does that inform the play? I unfortunately still think that the, uh, the widening gap between the 1% and the rest of us is going to continue to get bigger and bigger and, and the diminishing of the middle class that's going to be something that is definitely going to to date this play, I think. 
So it, it's moments like that, less so about actual technology, but more so about those instances of things that we are truly terrified of now. But but I hope that that's like, you know, part of the power of theater. I, I do feel optimistic that, you know, especially the generation that's behind me, that they are much more, um, they are much more vocal and out there about making change. So, you know, maybe, um, maybe my play will come and this will just be a history lesson for what could have happened, right? A cautionary tale. And then that, that'll be the best circumstance for that. But um, yeah, it, it's just those elements that, that I think are going to have the, the kind of withering effect on that time will have on it. You've already begun to answer this, but I was going to ask, since you, you mentioned all of these very valid concerns about grim eventualities that we may face. Did having this opportunity to speculate on what the future will be uh, make you in any ways hopeful? Did it make you in any ways optimistic? I mean, it, it did make me, it did make me hopeful in some ways because, you know, um, I'm living it. So, you know, especially, so, so I'm living it. I realize it's real. It's happening. We have to do something about it. So the idea is hopefully that there are other folks like me who are now waking up to that, that, you know, it's not cool for you to live with $90,000 hanging over your head in debt. Like that's not a thing that, that you, you should have to worry about. It's not cool that you should, you know, have to, isn't it kind of screwed up that you should have to pay for a higher education, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to pay for a higher education to just better yourself and make the culture and economy better? Like what kind of world is this? So I'm hopeful in the, in the idea that there are folks that are just like me who are realizing it and are just like, this is fucked. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do a thing where I write my anxieties out and I call that a play. <laughs> and then there are going to be people who are much smarter than me, much more innovative than me, who are actually going to be like, well, I'm going to actually do something that changes it, you know, and, and raise awareness to it. So there is hope that people are waking up and do want to make change, but you know, um, there, there, there is a, a little bit inside of me that is just like, well, how long is that going to take? What do we need to do? What sacrifices are we willing to make? And can we, can we uh, truly meet the challenge? We've talked a bit about this, but were there any big challenges in writing this play that we haven't covered yet in terms of writing these characters, telling this story, any of that? They say that like the hardest thing for any writer to do is to write an autobiography. And this is, I mean, this is not at all an autobiography of me, but the anxiety that I feel over being a part of the middle class that is slowly disappearing and the anxiety that I feel about, you know, my, my body and my agency as somebody who identifies as a woman being constantly threatened every single day of my life. That was something that I struggled with and and I tried to put into each of my characters and you know, once again, you know, I, it's one of those things where why is it so hard to write an autobiography? I don't know. It just is. So I'm I'm kind of hoping that those anxieties and those vulnerabilities that I infused, you know, in, into Sax and, and into Sarah and, and into Mac and into all the characters, that's something that, that I'm really looking to kind of flesh out and make sure that, that it happens organically and it doesn't feel forced. And I don't know, maybe work something out without, you know, having to go through my therapy session or something like that. <laughs> well, I love how there is this deeply personal undercurrent in this play. And I think I, 
went through a similar experience writing a play that I think if you looked at it and how far removed it is from me and the world I'm living in, you wouldn't see how personal it is, but it is also deeply personal. And yeah, it does make it so much harder in so many ways. It's the thing of you can't get editorial distance from yourself, right? You can't treat yourself like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that characters are 2D, but at a certain point you have to look at them that way. You have to look at them from that angle. Um, mm-hmm which is particularly hard to do with yourself. That's part of the reasons why I will never direct one of my own plays. I will never, well, first of all, I'm not a director. I've learned that very early on, but that is not my, that is not my jam. And I shouldn't even try because it's an embarrassment, but that's you know, part of the reason that, you know, I, I look forward to opportunities, but like this workshop is the fact that I'm going to have a director in the room to say this, Rachel, this doesn't make sense. And be like, well, it makes total sense to my head. It's just like, well, we don't live in your head, Rachel. So I can do something about it. And it's just like, okay. And that's kind of part of the reason that I, I, like I said, I really do enjoy these moments, these workshops, because, you know, as a playwright, you know, we're by ourselves in front of a laptop or in front of a pad of paper. And we think everything makes sense in front of us. And this is clear as day and everything is on point and whatever. And then we give it to somebody and it's just like, that's a huge plot hole. This character has absolutely no motivation. Like it's just, and it's just that that's what we need though. Right. So for those moments of where I can't get out of my own head, I'm truly looking forward to my director, to my actors, to my designers to be like, this doesn't make sense. This is what I'm seeing. If you want to see something else, you need to change it or write better. (laughs) At the risk of making you brag, do you have uh, some particularly favorite moments in this? And I don't necessarily mean this part, I think, is objectively the best part, though I I welcome that. But also this part was really hard to find. So I'm proud of it or something like that. You have uh, parts of this play you're particularly fond of or attached to. God, because it's going to be a spoiler. Well, maybe not. All right. It's just a reading. Fuck it. So the part that, that I truly love about this play and when I was, you know, once again, focusing on the torso image, where is this torso going, where you're going to end up. And, you know, whenever I feel like when you're writing and you come to the middle, for me, at least the middle is always the worst part of the play. Cause it's so murky. Oh gosh. I hate it. <laughs> I hate it so much because I'm just like, I know where I want to go. I know I see the ending, but we have to go through this really, really murky part that I don't even understand. So for me, that, that murk, that guck, that fogginess cleared up during the scene where Bex and Sarah get to be in an actual room together for the first time, body to body, not, not as holograms, but actual human beings in a room together. And they don't necessarily experience what we consider a handshake, right? Which is just like hand to hand, shake, shake your hands up and down. They get to experience their version of a handshake, which is essentially touching each other's torsos, right? Because Sarah is now wearing Sax's body and Sax is now wearing the silicon structure that Sarah's company created and touching skin to silicon and these two very different worlds, you know, for, you know, you can, and, and what that means to folks like have at it, but skin to silicon, past to future, present, whatever. Um, that for me is, is the moment that I look co forward to in, in the play and, after we had our our initial design meeting, 
where, where I got to meet all my, all my scene designers and sound designers and, and all these fabulous, wonderful people. Um, my director asked before we hung up for that day, it was just like, Rachel, is there anything you want to say to this group before they go away and come back with their designs? And I was just like, guys, you know, I, I just want everybody to remember that this is a world where human beings have not touched each other ever. Unless you were fortunate to live with someone like Sax and Max, you have not experienced human touch in any way, shape, or form. I, I have this note, this reference in the play where one of the characters say that they learned about handshakes in history class. Yeah. So it is this completely outside-of-the-box concept that you actually touched a stranger with your hand. So think about that whenever you're thinking about your set design, whenever you're thinking about your lighting, your sound, your costumes. Same direction, I would hopefully, you know, uh, hope would be given to actors so that when Sax and Sarah meet in this room, this is truly a moment, and they're literally just touching fingertips to their torsos. I know this is not your quarantine play. (laughs) <laughs> but just so you know, that's one of those moments where the experience, the lived experience of COVID right. Right. is going to magnify every, everyone relating to that scene by like a factor of 10. I, right, right. I got my vaccine, um, my first vaccine shot Yay. like the other day. Yeah. And uh, that was my first time being in a physical room with people, at least being in a physical room with people for a length of time, being like close enough to be in touching distance. Um yeah felt so weird for the rest of the day. It was not just the shot. It was being in that space, being in touching distance of people for the first time in a year in my brain, remembering like that engaging a whole, a whole part of my brain that had just been atrophied for a solid year. It's insane. I mean, like I'm an introvert, tried and true. Like I am so happy to be working from home, you know, whenever whenever companies are just like, don't you miss the camaraderie and, <laughs> and, and the, the water cooler discussions. And I'm like, nah, uh, I'm like, I really enjoy my quarter. <laughs> like, that's great. Uh, that's fine. I enjoy being a disembodied voice on team's call. That's fine with me. But even then, like, like the people that, that I consider like my loved ones, either my family or my found family, you know? Yeah. So yes, of course, this isn't my quarantine play, but I wrote it during a quarantine, so elements of that are going are gonna to seep in. <laughs> do you feel like, I already know the answer to this one, do you feel like the play is done? If not, like how far away do you feel you are? Are there specific moments you know you want to work on, or is this more about finding those moments? This is, this question is always so difficult because like I, I'm, I'm a true believer in the fact that plays are never done. Like I've had plays that have, you know, have had two productions and I've still rewritten them. I really enjoy the um, Sam Shepard model of things in terms of, you know, the, the dude won the fucking Pulitzer and um, he went back and rewrote that play. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, like when you win the Pulitzer, it's just like, you did it. Like that's it. It's done. Like can't do anything else. And then he went back and rewrote it. And, and I, I, I love that. I love that. And, and I, as a, as a writer, I'm just like, that's the model that I'm going to lead by. But I mean, in terms of like, is it ready for a production, something like that, to get into the hands of, of somebody who's actually going to look at it with a budget? I'd like to think that it's pretty much almost there. I'm probably always going to rewrite it. I'm, I'm going to rewrite it up into Tech Week. So, you know, theaters beware. I, I am that playwright. Mm-hmm. But I think that, once again, you know, referencing the fact that technology is always changing, things like that, there's going to always be something that inspires me about this play that I'm going to want to add in. I'm going to want to tweak. I'm going to want to change. 
I think that specifically for this opportunity uh, with Landing Theater and uh, hopefully what I'm going to look forward to after this, right, is to truly explore uh, really making this world around them as solid as possible and allowing the audience to participate in it without hearing my voice as the writer, right? So once again, going back to the idea of I don't want to exposition them to death. Mm-hmm. So a big thing that I'm going to be looking forward to is looking at the structure of the world, everything about it. And anytime I hear my voice in it, I'm going to be like, nope, got to take that out and just trust my audience, trust them to explore this world on their own and trust that they're going to enjoy it. In a perfect world where you get this produced, I don't even want to say limit it to one production. This gets produced multiple times. Uh, what Not does ever. that production or those productions, what do they look like? And, and feel free to get into any details about this in terms of the venue, the cast, the feel, uh, the audience. You know, I'm really going to, I really love the conversations that we were currently having in my design meetings with, with the landing crew. They were, my scene designer came up with this brilliant idea. So first and foremost, you know, uh, when we're doing this workshop with New American Voices Festival, the designers are told you have an infinite budget. Like you, you just have all the money in the world. So go hog wild. And, you know, that is, I can imagine that's a goal to like anybody. Like, great. I can, yeah. I can do whatever the fuck I want. One of my designers came up with this idea to incorporate, I don't know if it's some kind of scrim material or something, but it's definitely theater in the round. And I absolutely love that idea that I, I am obsessed with this play being in theater in the round. And the idea that the play is encompassed by this scrim material that actually allows projections that look like holograms to happen on the scrim. So you have the actual human bodied actors in the center. And then whenever holograms happen, you know, they're able to, to project that onto the scrim and then interact with their holograms. Like, I think that's beautiful. That's wonderful. You know, and, and I hope one day to have a half a million dollar budget staring me in the face. Like that would be great. But I also think that, you know, something that I, I look forward to this play is I'm from Chicago. I was born and raised here. I was born and raised by the theater scene in Chicago. And uh, that means I was born and raised by storefront theaters who are told you have a budget of $300. Have fun. And I think a lot of magic can happen with a $300 budget. And I think that this play is, is right with that. So, yeah, if you have half a million dollars to throw up my play, you know, um, I'll be sure to negotiate that in my contract. And I'm sure we're going to come up with some great stuff. But in terms of the companies that would pick it up that are staring at like a $300 budget, what have you, I think like there is tons of room to come up with some really great theatricality here and things that most people would say are unproducible and impossible. I think that this play is a perfect opportunity. And this is one of the things that I really look forward to and why I love the fact that theater is so collaborative. I have a lot of colleagues and associates and friends who are designers. And when I sit down to write, sometimes I think about like, I want to make my friends look cool. Like I want to write something that makes them look real cool and shows like how far they can stretch their wings and fly. So I think about like some of my friends who are lighting designers and I'm just like, they would come up with some cool as shit to make this happen. My friends who are set designers who are just like, no, give them $100 and they're going to be able to pull this off. So I I don't really have anything like specific, but I think that the idea that if this play were to get to produce multiple times, 
it can for any venue with any budget. Because, you know, just to remember that it's, it's the unproducible stuff is what makes theater theater, I think. I hope you get to see it at both ends of the spectrum. I, I, really I would love do. that. I would love it. <laughs> That's when you'll really know the play inside and out is when you've seen a storefront with a $300 budget do it and like Looking Glass or somebody with yeah. the world do it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Where it can exist at both spectrums and for everybody to consume and enjoy and interpret, like that would be lovely. But once again, you know, those unproducible elements, I don't think any kind of like money ties it to them. So, but uh, if you want a specific answer so that, so that I, I, I can be a, a good interviewee, I would say that it's, um, it's definitely like a picture. It's definitely theater in the round. And I, I feel that just anytime it's theater in the round and then we can incorporate the idea of like the audience also being involved. So maybe actors coming in from the audience, what have you. Like, I, I think that that also calls attention to a lot of those quarantine elements you were talking about before. Do you have any pluggables, like a website, a project you're currently working on somewhere you want to refer people to? Yeah, absolutely. So if folks just want to, you know, get to know me more, um, I do have a website. It is Rachel Bykowski Plays. So first name, last name, plays, and that's plural.com. I try my best to keep that website up to date, but I'm, I'm not a web designer. Um, so Looks there's great. that. <laughs> um, I um, I have a Facebook page, which kept a lot more up to date. So if they want to follow my professional Facebook page, um, I really don't do my personal one anymore. So just find the one that says Rachel Bykowski dash playwright. That's the best one to do. And then in terms of like other stuff that I'm working on, um, I have a, a current play that is going to be in production and available on demand streaming virtually. So anybody can watch it anywhere. Um, and it's a great option to keep people nice and safe during COVID-19. Uh, that is a production of my play Tight End. And that's with Relative Theatrics out in Laramie, Wyoming. Um, it's going to be available on demand, I believe, starting April 16th through May of some time. But yeah, like I said, you can download it and watch it whenever you want, which is a great service. And I think Cedar should probably keep up. Um, and I can do a whole entire spiel on that later. And then I'm actually uh, similar to, to how you're venturing into the podcast world. I'm actually working on a podcast series with a theater company out in New York called Tantrum East, working on a fictional true crime podcast series with them. And they're going to help me develop the script in the series. And that's going to be happening sometime in April as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for giving your time yeah. and your, your thoughts to this podcast. I, I'm really grateful. Thank you for inviting me on. This is wonderful. Um, and thank you for being such a wonderful host. Music for today's episode was composed by Juan Sebastian Cruz. The Landing Theatre New Works podcast is a production of the Landing Theatre Company under artistic director David Rainey. For more information or to make a donation, visit landingtheatre.org. See you next time.